Welcome back to the 573 Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Ebers, and man, it feels like forever since we published a podcast. Life gets in the way sometimes, and uh, we've been pretty busy on the 573. We've been doing a ton of shed hunting and gearing up for turkey season. But uh, on today's episode, Travis and I talk with Ben Dickman. Ben is an MDC biologist who manages public ground in Missouri. We talk prairie restoration, the history of Missouri's landscape, quality turkey habitat, and how to get it. We also talk about where to find those tasty mushrooms. This episode is loaded with good information, and I'm happy to bring it to you guys. Let's get right into it. All right, we are rolling, and I am sitting here with our guest, Ben Dickman, and co-host Travis Owen, and we're just kind of talking everything spring because it is starting to feel like spring out there. I know that you were doing a controlled burn today. Uh, right? We are supposed to. We actually had to cancel it. Uh, they threw out some red flag warnings today, so kind of kind of had to cut it today just for safety reasons, and then tomorrow's going to be even worse and could lead to some issues there. So Yeah, well, we don't want you guys to burn down the whole country. Yeah, yeah. Surely you uh, spent your free time shed hunting then here lately, Um, huh? I, I wouldn't be lying if on my way back through the area coming up here, I didn't take a half hour for my dinner break to go do some shed hunting a little bit, but didn't come up with anything. You find any sheds this year? Um, Yeah, I'm probably, I think I'm probably about 15 or so, and I usually don't find very many. I look a lot of our, our public areas around here, so yeah, kind of kind of gets hit, and you know, I try to look in the spots other people don't look i've been looking for on private and i feel like all i find is deadheads <laughs> <laughs> yeah we got hit around here pretty hard with dhd this fall or late summer into fall so there'll probably be a lot of that going on this year unfortunately hate to see it but. yeah yeah i did find a deadhead around a creek this morning i could have found like five this year it's a nice one i i didn't really want to mess with the salvage tag thing so i just kind of left it where it, it lay but you know i wonder if that has something to do with it you know? Yeah, I'd say especially close to Creek, I'd, I would imagine that would be primarily what it was. Um, I know there on the area where I work, we I think just on the south end, I found about 30 or 40 this year. Um, starting about beginning of August, it hit pretty hard. So. And you see that. I mean, it doesn't hit everywhere. It just kind of stays in some areas for yeah, the most can, part. Yeah, it can stay pretty localized. Uh, most of the time you see it really on the drought years, um, which last fall was getting pretty dry. Um, we really – like I said, turned on about August, beginning of August, we started noticing them, um, and then we were dry all the way through the fall, so. Okay. Well, Ben, why don't why don't you uh, tell the listeners who you are, what it is you do, and we'll get into a little bit of that. Yeah, so as they said, my name's Ben Dickman. Uh, I'm a wildlife biologist with Missouri Department of Conservation. Um, I work here in central Missouri, uh, managing about 18,000 acres of public uh, conservation areas, um we have a pretty diverse what i call our district um we manage a bunch of kind of high quality natural communities um glades woodlands prairies uh, we've do quite a bit of prairie restoration um old field management uh kind of kind of focus on in our district some small game management early succession habitat um that's kind of our go-to what is it that got you into wanting to be a biologist, and, and it, has it always been, I wanted to do something for the wildlife? Um, you'll hear a lot of people. I mean, most of the people that work for the department, you're going to hear, oh, I grew up hunting and fishing, and that goes the same for me. Um, grew up over around St. Louis area outside in the suburbs and 
was fortunate enough. My dad enjoyed hunting and fishing and kind of grew up following bird dogs across southern Iowa, northern Missouri, central Kansas. Um, we've never been fortunate enough to own a piece of property of ourselves, but always had some friends and acquaintances and stuff, been able to hunt turkey hunt grew up turkey hunting in the heyday in the early 2000s in northeast missouri um so that's what got me into it and luckily i had him to to really get me out and you know a lot of people they kind of wait until their kids are you know teenagers or something to start taking them to deer camp but we always went when we were younger and when new seasons came about he uh he was more than happy to take us along and that's what really got me going into it and kind of through elementary school middle school you know i thought i wanted to be a vet or something uh well, that's a heck of a lot of schooling and yeah. way over my no, head. <laughs> he said, I don't want to save the animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's that uh, during high school, I kind of got thinking about uh, doing wildlife management and work for the conservation department, I guess, was always a dream. Um, you know, growing up, most people think to work for the conservation department, you have to be a conservation agent. Um and I knew I didn't want to do that. Uh, yeah. But looking into it more, you know, I've, I realized there's some wildlife biology uh, courses throughout the state. Um, I decided on going to Northwest Missouri State up in Maryville, Missouri. Um, I was kind of looking at Mizzou, but it seemed like everyone in my high school was going to Mizzou. And then uh, they have a great program. But going from a bigger high school, I really didn't want to go to that big of a school. Um, and Northwest was a pretty good fit. Smaller program. Um, and then... A lot of conservation areas and stuff close up there in the middle of nowhere. So, hun- yeah. so hunting. Yeah. yeah, and you probably saved a buck or two just yeah. on tuition. Yeah, cause... yeah, that was a big help. And yeah. Then, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, the hunting up there kind of swayed my Heck yeah. swayed my choice as much as anything. Uh, I don't blame you on that one. And I'm sure I would have done a little better in college if I would have stayed out of the field. Well, but listen, anybody with a wildlife, you know, any kind of wildlife degree is going to probably take some time off school to go. Out yeah. I want a guy that's uh, been out in the field, not one that's yeah, sitting no in kidding. the classroom all day. No yeah. Kidding. I mean, we started out freshman year. We probably had, I don't know, 40 people in the program. We kind of start out with like freshman seminar class, everyone mm-hmm. the same major. And um, I mean, the, out of those 40, I bet I graduated with five of them with the degree heck yeah um i mean there's some kids in it they were in it just because they loved animals right there was the few of us i'll say the majority of people in there were doing it because they liked hunting but they didn't know all the biology that came along with it i mean i've taken about every kind of biology course you can imagine um so you had to get through all that um but yeah my i had professors that they knew i'd skip a class to go duck hunt or something and he'd ask me hey man if you we kind of want to update our wing collection for identification you yeah bring hey. us some duck wings so started doing that and then uh there was a couple that's a times, cool assignment yeah there was a couple <laughs> times I'd, uh, I'd doze off in class or something and he'd come pat me on the back and go huh must be duck season I'm like yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, how'd you know yeah, yeah. Well, i was at the draw this morning <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah well um you said that you work a little bit more, you guys focus on prairies. What exactly does that entail? Um, we're fortunate enough. Uh, we have a big prairie restoration area. We've It's about a 900-acre conservation area that an individual donated to us, and they kind of had a financial backing to where they allowed some other special, um, I guess, financial support for us doing prairie restoration. Um, so of that 900-acre property, about 750 of it, is now converted back to native prairie um, and those crop fields started out I mean this couple was they did everything 
MDC told them to do back in the 70s. So the place is pretty full of Cerecia lespidiza and autumn of some of the invasives we'll probably get into later. Um, so it was pretty choked out with that. And then just, you know, fescue for, there's a lot of cattle pasture. And then um, later became more ag cro- or crop land and stuff. Um, but since we've had it in our possession from the, probably the late 90s, and then I think um, one of the oldest plantings there was done about 2000, so we're going on about 20 years now. The project started, and we just wrapped it up. Our last 40 acres uh, would have been last, guess what, 2020, January 2020. Um, so we converted all that from once we got the property, we started cropping it, um, and that kind of helped us knock back on some invasive species. Um, just through tillage and chemical applications every year um, through the farming practices. And then well, after it'd be, we'd choose when it'd be like in a bean stubble um, following harvest. About like five years later, we kind of started on it. Um, and then we will actually collect all the, I guess, the original species planted down there, um, which we're talking highly diverse, 280, 300 species planted there when most of the mixes you're buying that are still pretty pricey or 25, 30 different species. Right. Um, and all this was hand collected local eco type seed on some of the native prairies that are left around here or some other reconstructions that were, you know, kind of started with native seed as well. Um, so we had a couple people that were full time hand collecting seed, um, cleaning it on a couple of machines we got. Um, and then we take all that and about January when there's some snow on the ground, we'll throw it in a fertilizer buggy, mix some potash in there just as a spreader. Um, and then put it on them old crop fields. And for the first couple of years, you got to do a couple maintenance mowings. Um, you know, first year you'll mow it twice, probably keeping it about six, eight inches. And just, that, is that just to keep the, uh, the species from before down yep. so that your natives can yeah, kind of flourish? That, yep. That takes out a lot of the competition. Um, that first year after that disturbance, you get a lot of foxtail and common ragweed. Um, and if it gets up taller, it would shade out the the native species in the first couple of years, they're really just putting down roots. They're not getting up and being showy that like you would see in a prairie. Right. Um, so for the first couple of years, you do that mowing twice the first year, the second year you'll do it like once. Um, and then that third year it'll actually start looking. That's like cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yep. And then we'll do some about that third year, you know, you can start burning it, um, about you know, February this time of year into March, depending on the year. Um, and then after that, yeah, hopefully it's established and, Slowly and surely, you'll see more species coming along. And right now, um, that first plant I talked about that's like 20 years old, um, one of our natural history biologists, um, the real smart guys that know everything, um, <laughs> they just compared it to Tucker Prairie um, over in central Missouri. That's a um, virgin, never-tilled prairie. It's off 70, isn't it? Yep, yep, right on the south side of 70. They just burned there. that, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, we burned that. It had been back in January. Um but yeah, they compared that to our reconstruction, um, and he kind of wrote a peer-reviewed article on it comparing how close these hand-collected, highly diverse plantings are to a native, undisturbed prairie, and we're getting pretty close to that. Wow, um, that's yeah. pretty that, impressive. No, that's actually super cool. I'm So I'm like a, uh, I would consider myself a nerd. wildlife nerd, <laughs> and so stuff like that, like uh, any kind of... Uh, any studies, any kind of um, material I can read on stuff yeah. like that, just absolutely, like, I'm infatuated yeah, with Yeah, that's it. awesome. That's what that's what we need more of, not just the, I mean, no knock on food plotting and all that, but, I mean, the way 
I look at it more as more of a whole ecosystem approach or natural community management is what we focus on. But I'm glad you said that. Um, I was curious whenever you we had this conversation for you to come on um, to talk to you about maybe some of the threats that our ecosystem is facing, and I was hoping that you could touch on that. Yeah, um, something I talked about right when we were talking about that prairie conversion stuff. Um, a major threat is invasive species, um, and there's no shortage of it around here. Um, I mean, especially over towards the more urban areas, you'll see you'll see way more bush honeysuckle than we have around here. Um, and then a lot of other shrub species that can be introduced from around the house, privet, and um, eh, it's hard to think of more off the top of the head. But well, What are you guys doing to combat that? I know that you mentioned you said you were killing them with chemicals and burning and cutting and squirt hack and squirt yeah, stuff. Um, there's there's all kinds of means um kind of depends on what you're targeting um like autumn olive and bush honeysuckle um the best way i've found is to do a basil bark treatment of it and you can really do that about any time of year um and that's just getting we use a garland four or um element four um, and then you just mix that in a diesel carrier um either like a basil bark oil or diesel fuel or kerosene um, and then that application is just, you're, you're wringing the stem, you know, from about, from the root collar on the ground to about a foot up, um, on the stem. And you can do that for a bunch of different species. Um, but that's, that's kind of the best thing I've found. It's kind of a slow, methodical kill. Um, it'll, if you do it, yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, so is, so you basically, are you, uh, just like ring cutting it like you'd ring cut no. a tree or you're just spraying that you're on just the spraying bark. it you're okay. spraying it so we'll put on backpack sprayers and walk through the woods or if you know it's a smaller application you can use a little hand spray hand garden okay. sprayer but yeah you're just spraying that on there and that diesel fuel in there acts as a penetrant holds it on the bark and then penetrates that bark and gets in that cambium layer of the plant i'm gonna take that home because i actually have a ton of autumn olive and i've been um i've been cutting it off at the base and then putting toward on around the outside yep. ring and that takes forever. Yeah, yeah, it takes a while. Um, and then a lot of that, too, if you don't get it applied right away or covering a lot of the, the bark or the stump, you'll get a lot of root suckers popping up with them. And okay. It's hard, it's hard to control, but like I said, that best thing i found is garlon and, or element um, basil bark treatments. And then you can do it, like I said, you can do it year-round. Uh, we do it through the winter, and you'll actually see it kind of leaf out mm-hmm. in the spring, but it'll shortly after die off. Okay. Um, that's just because... Kind of, it still had some energy stored above the roots, so it was mm-hmm. able to produce leaves, and then it'll die back, and you go scrape your thumbnail against the bark, and it'll be brown instead of green. Okay, That's good. Here, so. That's yeah. all she wrote. No, I'm excited about that, because <laughs> I've honestly, the past, uh, well, I haven't done much the past two weeks. I've been pretty busy, but um, right before it got cold, like super cold, I was hacking down yeah. a ton of stuff, and I was mostly going after invasives, and... Um, I know uh, I've got some in-laws that live close to the uh, close to the river, and they have a big bush honeysuckle problem. Yeah, and I mean it's gnarly. And I was trying to think of a way to where I could actually, you know, wipe out a large area um, of it, and without using you know heavy machinery and all that. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask. Um, you have this autumn olive, you have this bush honey suckle. Obviously the white the wildlife is figuring out and adapting how to use it. You go in and wipe it all out. Is that something that you guys wouldn't recommend? Like maybe just wipe it out a little bit at a time or are you guys just going in there and 
We're knocking I mean, it out. In my opinion, the the more the merrier. Um, I mean, if it's what's there for wildlife, it's not going to be totally useless. Right. Um, it's the problem it causes. It it just creates a monoculture mm-hmm. and shades out, weeds out everything else native that'd be growing there. Um, so if you're if you're in a spot that has that hasn't had much like disturbance in the woodlands or a grassland it's growing in and it's taken over, you could probably you know, either basil bark it or cut it down and pile it. And eventually you're going to get some native species growing back that have been shaded out by that. Um, so by removing it, I mean, I think you're doing more, you're good than harm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like autumn olive, bush honeysuckle, the deer are browsing on bush honeysuckle a little bit. A quail or a rabbit's going to use an autumn olive thicket thinking it's a native plum thicket if that's what's there. But there's alternatives for when you remove these species. You can go back in and plump and plant, you know, native plums or dogwoods, shrubby dogwoods, to take the place of the invasives that were there, and then and better shoot. And uh, probably, um, I mean, I know it's not ideal, but even if you did uh, wipe out most of it, it would be. I mean, you'd probably get some undergrowth, especially because it's like I'm thinking about doing it like probably this next few weeks um, before everything greens up. So do you think if I went in there and got rid of it, would natives pop up this spring or would it probably be a little too short of a time span? Um, Without fire, I'd say you're going to struggle to really get anything popping up pretty soon. But if you ran a prescribed fire through it within a year or two, you might start seeing some come up. It, again, it, it depends on how disturbed it was before. Yeah, and this is mostly, native mostly woodlands too, yeah. so... I feel like prescribed fires are a really hot topic right now in the hunting industry. So I'd like to hear about maybe the benefits of getting a prescribed fire. Yeah, um, it depends really on the on the community you're working in. Um, Like I said, we we manage glades, woodlands, prairies, old fields, all that. I guess an old field is just a crop field grown up, and you know you're kind of controlling succession there. So that's really not a natural community, Um, but yeah, prescribed fire is your, your cheapest, easiest tool. Um, I mean, it can be intimidating, but we're fortunate enough, and I'm sure a lot of other states too, um, you can consult some wildlife professionals, either like our private land conservationist or Quail Forever groups. Um, there's some prescribed fire, I think like uh, co-ops out there that help e- landowners help each other burn. Um, but yeah, that's, that's our number one tool. And you said it's a hot topic kind of in the hunting community, which is great because it's a form of natural community management where you're getting a lot done. I hope it's not just a trend. I hope it sticks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's great. Um, I mean, you're, if you're in the woodlands, I mean, a lot of, a lot of Missouri's woodlands are overstocked. Just mean there's too many trees in them. Um, and I guess I'll back up Missouri's ecosystems and a lot of, if you're in Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, Arkansas surrounding states our ecosystems you know developed alongside a fire here we're sitting I mean you, you guys know the habitat here you get you get south of us it's pretty wooded rolling hills you get just to the north of us and it's like you hit a plateau mm-hmm. and prehistorically pre-settlement to the north of us was prairie to the south of us was woodlands and all that was kind of created by glaciers and now uh, a long time ago and that's that's kind of too far out in my head but I like to picture like Missouri pre-settlement north of the Missouri River was dominated by tall grass prairie. And those prairies kind of helped shape the, uh, I guess you call it the, like they refer to it as the prairie savanna woodland like continuum, just meaning the transition. 
So if you picture where we're sitting, I know it'll be hard for listeners, but um, this this goes along if you look around too. I mean, you can kind of picture it. But where we're sitting now, the prairies either Native American started fire, lightning started fire, whatever else possible. And those fires to the north swept through here because we're talking all no- tall grass prairie to the north of us. And then to the south of us, the woodland started. So those fires would sweep across the plains, and there's nothing stopping them until they hit the Missouri River. So you'd hit that edge of them woodlands, and that's what helped shape savannas. Just mean you go from the prairie, which has no trees in it, you go to a savanna community that that's like five, or I guess like three to fifteen percent canopy cover, meaning trees scattered through it, and the the fire tolerant species, your oak, your white oaks, black oaks they'd be able to tolerate them fires, especially if they're larger trees. They would make it through those fires, all the undesirable, I guess there weren't really non-native trees back then, but some native trees are less, uh, are more prone. Prone. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) I got you back. Yeah. (laughs) Are more prone to being killed by fire. Um, So they would would thin that out. So underneath those real small amount of canopy that five percent canopy you've got the same prairie species that were here to the north or just up adjacent to these savannas you've got that growing underneath the savannas and then you get more into the open woodlands um, so you're ranging 15 30 percent canopy cover fire still swept through there pretty good and killed out a lot of trees but with the more vegetative the fire kind of died down and you'd have more trees because there was less intense fire. That fire wasn't just slamming up against the edge of the trees like it was in savannas. So you get that, uh, and that's what shaped the landscape here. And them open woodlands, they still had those vegetative species, um, forbs, native warm season grasses, cool season grasses. Those are in the woodlands too. And now, fast forward to settlement days when humans stopped the fire, took it off the landscape, Trees grew up thicker than they ever would. Um, now with some climate change, we're getting even more precipitation than we ever can. It's pretty hard to keep a tree out of a prairie around here right now. Um, so once fire was removed from the landscape, the the tree the woods became overstocked, just meaning there's more trees than what pre-settlement would have been there. Um, so that's a way, if, if you're in a location where your woods haven't been heavily grazed or your crop field hasn't been... I guess if it's a crop field, it's been worked a lot. Um, but if you've got like a, you know, a pasture that hasn't been really converted to fescue or taken over yet, um, there's a chance just with reintroduction of fire on that landscape, some of them native species in the seed bank will come back a couple of years down and, the line. And some of those seeds are actually, I, I've just heard this and I'm not sure if it's true or not, but aren't some of those seeds actually activated by fire? Yeah. Yeah. That's a process called like sclerification. Um, just meaning some seeds take a form of kind of something to break up the seed coating, whether it's like a freezing, you know, overwintering a freeze thaw to crack that seed coating open. Um, a fire will do it by cracking it open, getting it hot. So some species are like that. That's um, cool. And that's, that's another benefit of, you know, uh, prescribed fire for the woodland stuff. Um, kind of some woodland species, acorns and stuff will need that. So, so ba- oh, sorry. Stephen, no, go you're, ahead. you're good. I just wanted to say that I think everyone should appreciate the history that he kind of gave us so that, because it shows the importance of where we once were and where we need to kind of head back to. Yeah. And of course we're never going to be able to get back to that. There's not every landowner out there is interested in right. that. And sitting to the North of us here is dominated by, ag country and that you can't just 
boom, quit the plow and go back to that. Um, I mean, you could, it, it's possible to do it through, uh, reintroduction of plants and whatnot, but. Right. But it, that takes a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot yeah, of work. A lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of work. So, I mean, if any small landowner, you guys, whoever, um, who has an interest in it, every little bit helps. And that's, that's something I really didn't catch on to until a couple of years into doing this, that that's kind of cool I, if i could go back in time to early 1800s late 1700s no to see kidding, what it's like same yeah. i just want to see what it's like you yeah. know uh so and hopefully somebody can uh one of our listeners can um kind of um feel where i'm coming from because i have uh we've got i think uh 120 acres and about there's a, a block that's probably 20 to 30 acres that's all woods but it has so many um sprouts coming up through it and it's a bunch of saplings um but it's really diverse um a lot of i mean elms a lot of white oak species a lot of black oak species uh dogwoods hackberries buckeyes you name it it's got a it's really diverse but um a lot of saplings and 100 percent canopy cover i've been trying to cut a lot just so that I'm trying to get some light to the ground. Um, and I would like to burn it. Um, but some family members don't want to because, uh, they say that there will be a black ring in the oaks or the timber and they don't want the timber value to go down. Yeah. That, I mean, if you look on our conservation areas that we've been burning every year since the seventies, there there will be some noticeable fire scars, but all that can kind of be eased by, I said earlier that we called off burning today because of pretty extreme conditions. Right. Um, you can follow, like if you got with your private land conservationist, he's going to write you a prescription for burning that. And it's going to be, you know, burning within a humidity of 40 to 55% winds less than 10 miles an hour. Um, and that, that can really help ease that, intense fire that would cause them damages to mature right. trees um but at the same time you're getting a you know if you if you burnt like when the humidity's higher um a slow wind or a low wind um and you still had dry fuels that it's gonna burn pretty good it'll be a you cooler can, fire. yeah you can you can have a cooler fire um i mean you might have like you'll have smaller flame lengths and everything but that fire creeping through there is gonna kill some of them trees a good kill elms and Okay. Um, some dogwoods and stuff that are that aren't as tolerant to fire as um oak like even some of them oak saplings you'll probably a lot of this will be top kill just meaning depending on your time of year if you're burning in the dormant season um you're going to top kill everything mostly and by and top kill you mean top kill meaning it's going to re-sprout from the roots so you're killing all above above ground growth um, and then there's still enough energy stored in the roots. It'll probably send up a, another shoot. Okay. So the top, if it's, uh, let's say, I don't know, a 10 foot tall tree, just a sapling, um, it's going to kill all that and that'll rot, fall over, but there'll still be another sprout from the ground basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Depending on the time of year. And a lot, if you're burning closed canopy stuff, um, it's going to be kind of a dormant season burn. You're not going to get a good grown season burn to go through it. I'm, I'm talking grown season, like late late spring but you got to be careful because you can damage more than what you're hurting there right because um, the sap's flowing and all that yep and then you know you got to think about other species that are out and about then too snakes and amphibians and 
that's why we're kind of towards the end of our window. A lot of our prescriptions call for, you know, through March up until the end of March is when we're calling it quits because a lot of uh, important species are out and about then. Is there any truth to um, whenever an oak burns during uh, the right conditions that it's just because it was a weaker tree? It was a tree that was on its way out? I'd say depend on the the size you know the diameter of the stem if it if it's a sapling oak you know within a couple inches it it's going to probably top kill but a large i'm no forester i can't picture what a diameter would be off the top of my head but if it's a large mature oak tree it's unless it's extreme fire behavior it's going to live through that um and i think we're kind of your black oaks have a shorter lifespan too so it if it's a 50 year old tree that's kind of dying there's a pretty good chance if there's any if it's drying out it could catch on fire and create a snag i mean if you look through the word woods we're we're killing big trees and creating snags but at the same time that's creating habitat for woodpeckers and squirrels and den trees for coons and whatnot so okay well um let's switch gears here since we are gearing towards turkey season i wanted yeah. to ask you a few turkey season questions did you have anything to add that you really wanted to get out about the ecosystem or anything else? No, no. And it, some of this might come up in tur- talking turkey hunting too or something. Okay. But no. Yeah, I'd love to touch on it if, if it comes to mind, okay? Yep. But uh, as a landowner, you know, what can an individual do to improve the habitat and the hunting for turkeys? All right. Um, prescribed burning? No. <laughs> um, no, it, it, that can help. If, if you're creating the habitats we're talking about here by, you know, some woodland thinning, TSI, um, I picture doing all that type of work is, you know, you're getting sunlight to the ground. You're causing more herbaceous herbaceous growth, forbs, grasses. That's going to be nesting cover for wild turkeys. That's going to be, you know, brood rearing habitat. Um, I kind of like to think of, you know, when you, when you talk TSI and everything, you're putting habitat at the deer or turkeys level. I mean, if it's a closed canopy woodland, there's what 30 40 foot up to the canopy right but if you open the 100 yards yeah yeah if you if you open that up and you're getting more growth on the ground where's that eye level your eye level that's protecting a turkey from overhead um you know threats red tail hawks and whatnot um you're putting browse at the deer's level i know you talk turkey so we'll get back to that um i actually i had a buddy um sorry to i don't mean to interrupt uh but i had a buddy call me on the way over here actually and he just burned off they just burn off his woods and uh i personally i would think that that would be this right now would be a fantastic time to burn off if you're looking for because that stuff i've seen what it can do if you're burning you know late winter early spring and it greens up about two to three weeks before everything else there's a lot more food a lot more cover in there would that be something that you would um definitely recommend for yeah. people to be doing um yeah, right if, now for the yeah, turkeys. if you can time it right i mean turkeys are extremely attracted to areas that were burned one they'll be attracted right away because you burnt up probably some insects you exposed a bunch of acorns by burning off that matted down leaf litter um so they're attracted to it you know kind of right away right off the bat and then going into spring turkey season you burnt off kind of the what was growing up above you know you could see through the woods better for a time being and turkeys get it greens up turkeys love strutting a nice green spot uh you know it's it's nice and clean for them to strut through um so i i always have i mean i hunt our public areas pretty heavy for turkey and it's hard but i'm every year if we burn i'm focusing on that area so heck yeah well 
That's a uh, hunting tactic, yeah, folks. And uh, I, I'm just a little bit worried now, Ben, because I think maybe the entire Missouri will be starting to catch on fire and they listen to this hey, podcast. Yeah. Well, if even <laughs> half, to kill a turkey this year. If half of it does, then it'll be a foot in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, I mean, that's part of it. And then just we've talked to prairie restoration and stuff too. Um, creating that, I said, brooder and habitat, nesting habitat. If you can draw the hens into your property during turkey season, the toms are going to follow. Um, yeah. So if the hens are there nesting in your warm season grasses or forbs, there's a good chance that Tom's will be hanging out around there trying to draw their attention. Excellent. So that type of, uh, you know, habitat work greatly improves turkey habitat. Um, and then you've got like brood rearing habitat. Um, once a, a clutch is hatched, um, you know, where they're going to spend their summer kind of would be them same forb plantings because then those poults and hens are making it through the summer by eating insects. And the, the more diverse the planting or old crop field, whatever it is, um, you know, the more blooms that are out there for insects to be attracted. Um, that's what the turkey's going to focus on. And then creating that kind of open cover for them little poults to get around soon after they're born while supporting, you know, uh, overhead kind of canopy cover. Um, they refer to that in like certain plants as like umbrella species. Um, if you're talking like quail management, I mean, a farmer's going to hate it, but common ragweed is great for brooder and habitat of quail and turkey because if you picture it on the ground, um, it's shaded out. It's easy to for a little bird to get through. Um, and then overhead, you've got, I said, umbrella species. Picture the stem of the plant, and then the growth of the plant up above is creating an umbrella. So it's shading you out from avian predators. Um, and then birds, too, they they have to really thermoregulate. They have pretty high uh, body temperature. So then those, uh, I guess, habitats, you know, the like I said, just common ragweed in old field or something. Um, that's allowing wind to wind to blow through underneath them plants. It's pretty open, bare right. ground. When what I mean when I say bare ground, it's not just a bare ground like kitchen table or something. It's right. it's bare ground. It has cover up above, but it's basically dirt there below. Um, so that helps birds stay shaded and get a wind blowing through there. So that's something for. And the I mean those turkeys are basically I mean they're almost black and I don't know if, if you've you know almost midday because we can't hunt you know afternoon but you shoot a turkey at 10 o'clock if you shoot him in a field and you go to pick him up he is hot yeah and that's why i think i mean a lot of the times one of my turkey tactics is if it's you know a warm sunny day most of those toms a lot of the toms will go to the woods just to get away i feel like get away from the heat yeah yeah i would i would agree with that i mean as a turkey hunter, you know, them late morning afternoon naps are great. So you're not going to sit out there in the baking sun to do that. You're going to go into the shaded. Right. So, no, I totally agree with that. Spent the whole morning screaming your head off. It's time for a little break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you had mentioned that, uh, you know, when we had talked, you had mentioned that you guys were doing some monitoring efforts um, for small game. Are you noticing that those uh, those hawks are, are the main problem or are you noticing it? different predators kind of not really one predator um i'd say i mean hawks are a pretty big problem um especially if like i talked about earlier a bunch of trees growing up in prairie plantings or um kind of field edges and whatnot that 
didn't have trees before. Those those are just all acting as perches um, like for rocks to perch, sit there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a lot of our focus on like our quail, you know, they used to be quail emphasis areas. Now they're quail restoration landscapes. Um, just some of these conservation areas that are focusing on small game management. Um, a lot of that is removing some of this brushy tree cover that's grown up over the last 30 or so years and spots that didn't burn great or just have kind of been neglected. Um, so there's, there's definitely a threat there to, to turkey poults and quail and rabbits, every small game imaginable. Um, but, you know, I'd say the some of the small game, or not small game, I guess nest predator populations are way up. There's hardly anyone trapping or anything anymore. Um, and then same with, when I talk, you know, mature trees being out in these grassland areas, um, same goes for raccoons. I mean, you could picture a raccoon who relies on trees to den and for cover. They're not going to venture far out into these prairies that used to not have trees in them. And now they have trees. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a problem with habitat. Um, I guess a change in habitat and then removing trees and, getting rid of these grassland areas too is really it's really shifting the turkeys to have to use either an old mature fence line a ditch that the farmer left the turkey's using that for nesting and so is the coon to move up and down the ditch yeah. um so we kind of have a a real linear landscape out there and those i think i think those nest predators are really keying in on that anymore and it's kind of part of i mean turkey populations i think throughout the country are kind of they're not dwindling. They're they're going down. They're not they're not at the height they were, you know, twenty thirty years ago. Um, but I think that kind of has part part to do with it. It's a strong opinion, and obviously, um, it's being preached that you know TSI, TSI, TSI. Just as a matter of how you do it, I guess you got to really kind of think about it from a prey predator perspective. What do you think about the uh, the decline in trapping do you think that has something to do with maybe the turkey decline as well or i think it could i mean the more nest predators out there on the landscape the better chance they have of stumbling across the nest um in my opinion this probably isn't proven anywhere i just kind of thinking about how turkeys i mean in here in missouri they started reintroducing the native wild turkey in the 50s all the way through the 70s um, and then, like I said earlier, the early 2000s, late 90s, I think were kind of the boom of turkey hunting and guys our age were probably, that's kind of what I grew up. And I remember mornings here and 20, oh 30 gobbles gosh. down the creek. Yeah, no, same. And, and you'd see them large flocks of turkeys, but they were still expanding at that point. Um, so figure, you know, as, as turkeys were reintroduced, um, throughout the state or, you know, reintroduced in another County, but made it into years, they're filling up that prime habitat first. And then they were kind of expanding into into subpar habitat, um, and they they were in that when you know the late nineties. They were everywhere, and figure some of them nest predators. They have short lifespans, a couple years. They weren't they weren't used to searching out ground nesting birds for nests. So I think some of that, the raccoons, the possums, the skunks, they've evolved alongside reevolved. I guess reevolved. Yeah, got better at searching nests. Um, and now that kind of there's some habitat loss, you know, the, everything's being more focused into one general area. And if they, if a, if a raccoon knows how to sniff out a turkey egg, I'm sure, I'm sure they can figure it out pretty quick. So. Yeah, no kidding. Now, um, so for these, well, and one thing I think is, uh, I mean, yeah, they're learning 
how to find nests quicker, easier. The turkeys are being pushed to places where they're finding them more. Um, and plus artificial food sources are also, I think probably a factor. Cause I mean, how many, who hasn't after deer season, you're trying to keep your deer going through the winter. You pour out some corn. How many times have you found, you know, uh, bunch of pictures of coons eating corn or seen pictures of other guys putting feeders out and there's coons all over i mean which oh yeah you're you're definitely feeding a lot of coons right with the pile of corn so what's your thoughts on that feeding feeding deer corn after after the season if if you have the proper habitat it's it's not needed i mean feeding corn especially that cold snap we had a couple weeks ago that that can be detrimental to deer they Corn offers hardly any protein, and their Midwest Whitetail just put out a great video on this that I was listening to the other night. But um, so corn offers hardly any protein, and if a deer's sitting there filling its stomach up with corn, it's going to go back and chew its cud, thinking it's full of highly digestible protein, but really it's just full of you know donuts or something. Right, um, <laughs> good for you. So yeah, there okay. there's definitely better alternatives. I know we've talked TSI and woodland thinning already, but Putting, if you have woody brows during that time period, that's what the deer are going to focus on. And I mean, woody brows like tips, they're eating the buds, the tips of the trees you cut down while doing some woodland thinning. And that's a much more natural forage for them. That's what they're making it through the winter on. So I uh, was guilty of feeding deer corn out my back door because I just like seeing them. And I noticed because I'm not that big of a deer hunter. I just like seeing wildlife, but I had, uh, I had a bunch of does back there and I watched, I was just watching them and they'd walk into, there's a pond in my backyard too. And there's a bunch of willows back there and they'd go and, and they'd eat a little bit of corn, but then they mostly would walk back and eat those tips off those yeah. willows. And I, I just thought that was super cool. Cause I mean, I never really got too much into deer and until you know, a couple of years ago, I didn't even hardly know what Woody Browse was, but yeah, I do that same thing in my house. There's old railroad bed behind me. It's grown up into trees and I can watch them all day long when there's snow on the ground. I can sit at the kitchen table and they're let, they'll get up a little bit, chew on some tips, some buds, and they'll lay back down and let their stomach do their thing. And yeah, it's cool. Pretty, it's it's fun. And right now, like on our areas that we've done a bunch of TSI or, um, I mean, we could go in two weeks ago and drop every tree and you'll go back the next day and you'll see that they're Just already nipping them up. buds off and every little bit of stemmy growth, um, whether it's an oak sapling or a, a native shrub in the woodland there, the tips of them are going to be ate off. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the lesson learned here is that instead of pouring a bag of corn out, we need to find some kind of supplementation. Obviously yeah, fire up the chainsaw. Yeah. Now <laughs> will they, will they, uh, just curious, will they chew on um, invasive species buds or not so much? Yeah, they're probably chewing on buds of honeysuckle or whatnot. If, so if you if drop them, that's even better. Yeah, uh, yeah. Unless <laughs> you get two birds, one stone there. Yeah. All right. So um, I guess we'll get to wrapping it up. But before we do, I know we're, we want to touch on everything spring. So I didn't know if being an MDC biologist, you had any tricks or tips up your sleeve for finding them uh, mushrooms? Um, I would say learn how to identify an elm tree would be would be my number one thing. And if, if you got a property, you can go out and some girdle some elm trees and kill them. You'll, you'll likely find some morels around them. 
hopefully I find a bunch because I dropped a ton of elms yeah. this year. <laughs> yeah, there's there's spots where I look. I mean, you could be walking through the woods and you'll see a tip. Of, it's kind of a cedar thicket, and you can see a tip of an old dead elm sticking out. And you can walk over there and find mushrooms in that spot on every dead elm in that little cedar thicket. So, so dead elms, and not our, just elms. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, dead elms. Though I can't be what. I don't, I don't know what it is, if there's some symbiotic relationship there, but yeah, a dead elm. And okay. elms, uh, just for viewers, they're known as a trash tree to a lot of people, and they have a bunch of sprouts all over them, basically. So that's just something. And also, there's a dictionary with uh, elm in there. You can look it up. <laughs> <laughs> you can Also, iNaturalist is a good one to yeah, that's a great app yeah you can yeah. identify uh trees or mushrooms do you look for anything other than just morels or do you look for i, I mostly stick with morels i'm not going to get into the stuff that could might kill you might not or resemble yeah. something else I, yeah. I, I stay away from that we got plenty of employees and right workers <laughs> that do and more power to them but yeah. no i stick with morels it's yeah. it was always my dad's favorite thing to do so we we definitely hit it hard in the spring yeah i just knew uh, i'd just look for morels as well. My dad eats the uh, the big. Uh, some people call them elephant ears, but the the big red morels, and that makes me sick. Even yeah. being in the house while he's cooking them, and then uh, people. Some people look for chicken in the woods or yeah. stuff like chanterelles or whatnot. I yeah, that goes beyond my knowledge, my nerdology. Well, uh, Ben, do you have anything else you'd like to touch on that you wanted to bring to the podcast? I know that you were really interested in coming on, and I know you wanted to talk Habitat, and I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to cover. No, I think we covered, you know, the, the heavy hitters these days. I could go into nerdy stuff, and you guys mentioned, like, iNaturalist and stuff. I think just as a Habitat management manager, conservationist, a hunter, if you take the time to just slowly learn a few species, either your tree species. So if you're going to do some TSI, you're better at identifying the, the kind of undesirable trees that don't offer a, a, a dollar amount or a, or a habitat. Take as much time as you need. Yeah, because, well, I drew uh, a blank here. We they're can, not offering. We a, can edit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not offering a mass crop or a fruit crop for um, wildlife. Um, and then if you, you know, if you start to pick up on a few native forb species and stuff, you can, you might see them sitting there in a corner of your field and you're like, oh, that's lead plane or something. That's a pretty rare, um, you know, native species. And that helps show, it's kind of an indicator species showing that, oh, that's, this was probably once a native prairie. And if I do a little burning or a little work to remove some, um, invasive, there's a chance something could pop there. Um, same with like, if you're walking through your woodland and there's some, big blue stem growing in the middle of it or lead plant and just some so some plants you can learn to identify and know their native species that shows that 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 once was that natural community with some work we can we can get it back to that just through chainsaw and fire or, you know a little bit of cost share work with your private land conservationist and reintroducing some seeds so simple as that you don't need to go buy that next supplementation or you don't need to go buy the uh the who's who and what's what in the outdoor industry you can just go get a chainsaw yeah go get something to burn with get a couple guys together and figure out what you're supposed to be doing yep do it wisely there's plenty of plenty of uh literature material material out there for you and like i said most state agencies are gonna have a specialist that can help you so all right well i appreciate you coming on ben i, I learned a lot from this 
this podcast and I'm excited to re-listen to it so I can <laughs> kind of pick it up. I'm probably right after this podcast. I'm going to nerd out with you for a little bit, but uh, yeah, we appreciate, all night. we appreciate you coming on. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Yep. Thanks. And uh, guys, we'll see you on the next one.